to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Our scripture lesson comes from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of God, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him this a third time, do you love me? But he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. I am so grateful to be here worshiping with you in this very tragic and tender time. This news from Buffalo and Claremont, California and Uvalde has had me in tears more times than I care to count over the past few weeks. Imagining people worshiping in their churches, grocery shopping, being in school, and then being the victims of unimaginable gun violence. So when I'm stressed and sad, I turn to one of my greatest comforts, reality TV. (laughs) I know you hoped that I would say the Bible. I'm so very sorry to disappoint you. But seriously, in times of stress, I find reality TV very comforting. I've watched it all throughout the years, the real world, America's Next Top Model, Top Chef, Project Runway, Dancing with the Stars, RuPaul's Drag Race, Queer Eye, you name it, I've probably seen it. I just want you to imagine the shock of my husband, Rajan, thinking he was marrying this deeply spiritual and studious woman, only to find her curled on the couch watching marathons of Real Housewives of Atlanta. But one of the things that's impossible to miss when you watch as much reality TV as I do is the famous line, I'm not here to make friends. It's usually said as response when someone calls out a contestant's shady and duplicitous behavior, the retort puts everyone on notice that they are not in the competition to win any congeniality prizes. They are here to win. In seminary, another prime reality TV binge watching era for me, 
I noticed that contemporary Christian culture in the West really echoes this line. We're not here to make friends. We're here to win. I noticed it in the way that Christian media portrays friendship. At best, it's a nice but non-essential relationship. At worst, it's something to be regarded with suspicion, even seen as dangerous. I had seminary professors caution us on building any type of friendships with our congregates. While I understood the reasons, I always thought it, that time might be better spent teaching pastors how to build friendships with healthy boundaries and mutuality in the face of complicated power dynamics. But I digress. I also once heard a pastor derisively dismiss another church as a friendship factory, as if that's a bad thing. I got so interested in the popular representations of friendship in contemporary Christian culture that for a seminary project, I watched dozens of movies marked Christian and inspirational. I'm dating myself because I found them all at the Blockbuster on North Druid Hills, <laughs> all in the section. But I wanted to see how friendship showed up in these movies. And in the hierarchy of relationships in most of these Christian films, Friends factored somewhere below pets, way after God, spouses, children, parents, siblings, cousins, all of that. And many films went as far as to depict conniving friends trying to pressure the devout protagonists from their faithful Christian walk. I'd love to say that things have changed since I found all those films at Blockbuster. But now that my antennas are up, I continue to see that many of these same themes find themselves in our Christian spaces. And I may be even afraid that things have gotten a little worse. In our culture, social media has allowed us to be friends without care or connection or intimacy or vulnerability. This weekend, I'll attend my 20th um, Agnes Scott class reunion. And it is jarring to think that I have seen the highlight reels of my classmates' life. And I think I know them and that we're friends, but I probably have not heard their voice in 20 years. And our ambivalence to friendship even shows up in how today's scripture's passage has been interpreted by many sermons and commentaries. The take I've always heard on this story has been one that dismissed friendship. At issue has been the two Greek words in this passage for love. The verbs are derived from the Greek nouns agape and philia. In the story, the risen Lord appears to the disciples in Galilee. As the apostles are fishing, Jesus appears on the shore. And once they arrive on land, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He repeats the question three times. It has often been pointed out that the word for love changes the third time that he starts with agape and moves to phileo. Most scholars divine phileos as the love of friendship, brotherly love, while agape is the divine and unconditional love offered by God. Much has been made of this verb shift in the text. This goes to show how a little Greek can be dangerous. It is often claimed that Jesus starts with agape and then downshifts to phileo, type of love, because that's all Peter can handle. 
And the last time Jesus puts the question to Peter, he says, do you phileo me? Commentators have argued that Peter is grieved because he realized that he has not yet matured to agape love for Jesus. And that Jesus simply settles for this second tier, phileo's love that Peter has to offer. This interpretation has long bothered me, mainly because of this re rush to create hierarchies of love. And I feel like that it misses the message of the scripture and the deeply caring relationship that Peter and Jesus already had. They have history. And in the context of Peter's denial, the three opportunities to affirm his love for Jesus seems redemptive to me. I see in Peter the grief referenced in the text is textured, a remembering of his denial of Jesus. And then also this opportunity to make things right. But also this realization that love demands things of us. Between friends, there is so much love that language cannot capture. This love exists as a tapestry, not as a ranking order. This, the love shared between Jesus and Peter isn't a consolation prize. It is a deep and transformative love. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends using both Greek words for love. Love in this passage leads us to seeing the world in a new way. We hear Jesus saying to Peter, love is going to change the way you interact with the world. That your love for me is changing the way you interact with the world and how you view yourself. That each loving relationship in our life should add depth, devotion, and commitment to other loving relationships in our lives. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. I have become a huge fan of Neil Douglas Klotz, whose translations of scripture explore Middle Eastern language, spirituality, culture, and mysticism that would have colored Jesus' teaching. In his book, The Hidden Gospel, he talks about how English and even Greek with its multiple languages for multiple words for love do not really capture the love that Jesus spoke of. The concept of love was one of movement, radiance, spark in our inner selves that demanded outward action and transformation. Love was never spoken of in that culture as an inner feeling, but as a catalyst to action. We see that this love of Christ requires Peter to love, live, and move differently. In this passage, we meet the disciples fishing. Peter's a fisherman. He isn't a shepherd. But this love that Jesus talks about demands transformation. He basically tells Peter, you're no longer a fisher of men. You're a good shepherd. Think about the relationship that fishermen have with their fish. And now consider the relationship that shepherds have with their sheep. Jesus is calling Peter into a whole new relationship with others, one that will demand intimacy, care, and deep love, even to the point of martyrdom. While preparing for this, this sermon, I read a beautiful piece in Modern Farmer, 
I didn't even know that was a magazine. But it was about modern shepherding. The shepherd, Craig Rogers, shared that many American shepherds will call themselves ranchers rather than shepherds. Because shepherding has been so devalued and even villainized in this culture, it is not romanticized like the Western cowboys. He says that there is this myth that shepherding is unskilled and unserious, not the work of real Americans. But he goes on to talk about how shepherding is so much more hands-on than traditional livestock farming, and how in shepherding, you tend to the flock by caring for the most vulnerable individuals in the flock. I had long heard, even in sermons, that sheep are stupid animals. But Farmer, Craig's, Farmer Craig counters that in his piece. He says, although many think of their flocking instinct to be a sign of dumbness, it is in fact a community-based survival mechanism where they have learned that their strength is much greater in numbers and their comfort and survival is enhanced as a group rather than as an individual. The intelligence of sheep is obvious to all those who take time to listen to them. In many ways, this is what Jesus is calling Peter to, a hands-on, listening, caring type of love. Not a love where you get to safely sit in the boat, but one where you're called to get right in there and help deliver the lambs in the middle of the night. That love for Christ, that love should radiate and compel us into loving the group all the more deeply and fully. Our very survival is based on it. Jesus isn't saying, if you love me, fill my pews. He's saying, if you love me, shepherd my people. Jesus is saying, let your love for me transform how you show up in this world. Your love for me has got to change your calling in this world. Get out the boat and get into the flock. The sixth mark of a vital congregation is caring relationships. It sounds so simple, but it's not easy. In Tressie McMillan Cottom's New York Times op-ed this week, she writes in response to the devastating shooting in Uvalde, the problem is not one of caring. Even the people with whom I vehemently disagree probably care. I concede that. The problem is that they care, the problem is what they care about more and how little it matters how much the rest of us care. That paragraph struck me in my tracks. I care about children getting gunned down in their classrooms. But what have I decided that I care about more? It made me think back to that reality TV catchphrase. We're not here to make friends, we're here to win. We're here to be right. We're here to maintain our comfort, to keep our security. We care, but not more than we care about ourselves. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So how do we care? Because I know this congregation, and I know that all of you care. 
You are one of the most caring and loving congregations I've ever had the pleasure of worshiping with. And I'm over telling me, uh, people telling me, you're not doing enough without telling me what to do and how to do it. I feel like I'm in this cycle of outrage, despair, exhaustion, and anxiety. And it can be difficult to see our way through, to take the next positive action in our lives. And at the risk of being Pollyanna-ish, the way forward is being here to make friends. When I worked as a chaplain in hospice, I was required by some Medicaid, Medicare guideline to create a pre-bereavement assessment. It was this very non-scientific evaluation of how I thought surviving loved ones would cope after the death of our patient. As you can imagine, there isn't any, really any way to know how someone will cope after a major grief event. But I did find one little measure that seemed to give me a clue. I would invite people to tell me about their circle of support. And people who were easily able to rattle off a few caring and stable relationships in their lives seemed to stay afloat in the treacherous waters of grief a little better than those who were not able to identify their support people. The way forward is with our friends. We have to draw no near to others and others to us. We have to do a little more shepherding and tending of those relationships in our lives. I remember reading a tweet some years back that said something like, young adults aren't leaving the church because it's not exciting or relatable. They're leaving because they watch their parents devote so much of their lives to it, and it hasn't made them more loving, better, more caring people. And how is that for they will know us by our love? And we have to see those around us as friends, not as enemies. My little brother Kevin used to call everyone his friend. We'd ask him, who were you playing outside with? Who did you eat lunch with? Who sat by you at school? And his answer would always be, my friend. And we'd ask, well, what's your friend's name? They can't really be your friend if you don't know their name. And he'd look at us incredulously. You don't have to know people's names to be friends? as if that was the most ridiculous criteria friendship that he could ever imagine. But there is something beautiful and radical about seeing the world through the lens of friendship. We care, to our, we care about our friends. We care for our friends. We listen to our friends. We are changed through their love. We also pray for our friends. I know that thoughts and prayers have become shorthand for passivity and inaction in the face of crisis. But I know we know better. Praying does change things. It changes us. In addition to reality TV, one of the things that I do in times of anxiety is keep a prayer journal. I pray each night for my friends, whose names I know and those who I don't and I ask for guidance on the action that I can take each day to feed, tend, and care, and make better the lives of my friends. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Amen.